So, uh, hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. How you doing? I'm okay. How's your week? It's good. Last week at the university. I'm all set up yeah. in my, uh, my new home office, courtesy of Ikea. Oh, uh, yeah. So it's next week. You yeah. start. Yeah. That's the rumor. Are you excited? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, that's better. Super. I got my uh, desk. Mood lighting. Desks are important, yeah. Yep. You'll need one of those. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Put put some more RAM in my MacBook Pro because of all the uh, the computing we're gonna be doing. Yeah, it's very RAM intensive. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I have to be able to like keep Hulu running on one screen the whole time, and that draws a lot of memory. Can't wait to fire you. It's gonna be so much fun. <laughs> That's gonna make the podcast extra awkward. It's true. So uh, it's August, and August is historically a pretty slow month in the world of news. Um, less so in the world of finance, it turns out. Uh, Not in the world of SIGGRAPH. Yeah. So that was um, sort of the excitement this week is SIGGRAPH, the uh, society of something graphical, something uh, conference where all the people who like uh, do the real math that makes uh, computer graphics and all this sorts of stuff we deal with possible, like the guys who figure out uh, how your graphics card should work and whatnot. They all get together once a year and they have for their... Oh, that was my microphone falling off the desk. Hi. Mm. That's going to make for good podcasting. Now I broke the stand. Hold on. You got a good new setup there. Well, it's a work in progress. All right. I just can't uh, gesture too wildly. So uh, anyways, SIGGRAPH, um, 30-some years, they get together. They talk stuff. They put out papers. It's like a real conference, not like uh, one of the ones we go to. It's like people present research. Um, so there's been some research. What do you think? What are you seeing that uh, you find pretty interesting? Yeah, so um, it seems like, one, a lot of the, so for the last year or so, the Connect's been a sort of hobbyist thing, and it seems like a lot of that is starting to bubble up into some of these papers. I've seen a few papers talking about the Connect and doing, you know, 3D mapping and whatnot with them. You know, I, th I think the Connect is, um, it's really interesting. I think it's one of those products that, first off, you have to give Microsoft a lot of credit for the way they've responded um, because they could have they could have been complete jerks about it, and I think that was their initial reaction. And, and obviously someone inside Microsoft said, hey, let's, let's be cool for once. And so they've actually embraced this community of people using the Connect for purposes other than it's intended. And um, right. What's happened is a lot of people have been able to make big jumps in interesting applications of technology because they haven't had to build this sort of fundamental bit, which is um, a way to get, you know, image plus 3D data plus depth data into a computer. Um, and so you've seen all kinds of really interesting products coming out of research labs at universities around the world. Um, that probably wouldn't have happened if those groups had had to spend the time building the technology and the software to do that initial step of, of getting Video Plus 3D joined together. Right. Well, I mean, that that's always been available. There are, there are commercial 
tools for doing that. They're just not sub, you know, 1K. They're not sub, you know, 20K. Right. And so this is $150 plus some open source software. So what we've seen is that, you know, a researcher has an idea about, um, you know, I want to do 3D video conferencing and can literally, you know, call up some grad students, get them some pizza and a couple connects, some open source software and a bit of sort of glue and, and other interesting bits and create 3D video conferencing. Um, and, you know, there've been all kinds of other applications that connect. Uh, Have you played with one at all? No, I haven't. I've been meaning to get one. They seem like uh, like they could blow a lot of my free time. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really cool device, and and it's you know, I've been really impressed with a lot of the stuff I've seen people doing. Uh, it really lends itself to that, and obviously, you know, you wouldn't build a shipping product around them, but it lets you do proof of concept really quickly, sort of rapidly prototype an idea, and then you can sort of build the deliverable off of that. Well, I don't think anyone's used it as, you know. R and D to market. I think people are mostly using it as well to R and D and experience. I think is what I mean. Right, but I haven't seen any. I haven't seen any of the things possible with the Connect transition into commercial applications. Have you? Uh, well, not yet, but it's it's early days for that sort of thing. But I th- I think we will. I mean, I think <laughs> you know we'll see three um, D video conferencing and maybe some other sort of augmented reality things based on the the simple application of the Connect technology relatively quickly. Right. I mean, the other thing is that the Connect was it 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 works really well for proof of concept because it's so. It's such a commodity item and it's such, you know, and as part of that, it's, it's relatively low quality. I mean, there's not, it wasn't ever really designed to show, I mean, it's designed to sort of heavily, be heavily post-processed. Right. And so for things like, it was never really designed as a webcam or as a 3D camera. Right. It's just two data streams for an application. You know, I don't think... I think we're a long ways from seeing a real 3D web conferencing app slash hardware solution from anyone, you know, at a decent price point just because I think there's a fairly large engineering jump. One, to just reinvent something of the same quality in-house and two, to nearly, you know, take that next step to something that looks good and doesn't have all the like hideous 3D artifacting that most of the, you know, most of these things look really good as long as you're ignoring. Right. Because there's things like occlusion and all sorts of, you know, there's a lot of issues. Well, there's noise. I mean, that's yeah. the biggest thing. And noise doesn't matter. <coughs> Excuse me. Noise isn't a big deal in video because it's gone right away. But when things, suddenly jump towards or away from you that sort of triggers like the oh crap someone's throwing a spear at me gene or neuron in your head and it's harder to ignore that at least now yeah and maybe maybe we'll get that bred out of us over the years by hollywood 3d but um at least short term it's sort of painful yeah yeah i'd agree i mean i think um 
in in the broader sense, I think what's what's really interesting at, at SIGGRAPH this year um, is the <laughs> the wide range of applications for doing 3D modeling and 3D video um, in really fast, really sort of tactical ways. The ways that can be applied in the field can be applied by sort of non-artistic and um, people who aren't necessarily equipped with super high-end gear, um, but can you know either do a 3D model of the environment they're in, or a 3D model of an object or of a person. Um, and so I thought we'd maybe just go through a, a few of the different technologies that that are particularly interesting. Um, sure. So um, first off was one out of uh, Microsoft's Beijing Research Unit, um, and this is actually uh, as best as I can tell. Um, uh, just a sort of mashup of some technologies that we've had in the field for a long time. They've taken um, motion capture, a traditional motion capture, which um, if you're not familiar, basically means you put dots on people, whether they're sort of ping pong balls or um, tracking dots that are just sort of... Uh, Little pieces of reflective tape. Yeah, or even, you know, um, marker sort of dots on someone's face or whatever. Um, so you, you take that and normally what you would do is you would capture those um, either with a normal camera or with an infrared camera, depending on the technology. And then a computer can later um, motion track all of those dots um, to, to figure out movement. Um, and normally what you would do to, um, to animate a, a 3D model of a face, for example, is you would model a face um, in a 3D modeling program. And then you would do motion capture of an actor performing the facial movements for that character. And then you would take the dots extracted from that actor and apply them to the model you'd created. And that would be used to, those dots would basically be used to deform the model. Um, and what this... this oh, as a base, and then you would right. go back, tweak it by right. hand. So what this research group's done is basically taken that 3D tracking, or uh, the motion tracking, and mashed it up with 3D scanning. And so that as the person is um, performing, you, you basically have your actor perform their facial movements and you do 3D scanning as they move plus motion tracking and use those together to create a much more accurate representation of, of a real face, um, which is, it's pretty interesting. I mean, um, at least the, the demos are pretty interesting and it seems like a pretty um, immediately applicable technology. Right. So this is, I mean, is that really what they're doing? Uh, that's my understanding. They use a combination of 3D scanning way. and motion capture system. Uh, yeah. Hmm. My assumption was they went and they did the motion tracking sort of in reverse from the 3D scans. But maybe you're right. I don't know. Yeah. It seems, yeah, I mean, this is kind of the... The holy grail going forward is figuring out some way to quickly rebuild models from reality. And that seems to be a lot of what, you know, a lot of these projects this year, these presentations that Zigraph are. And they all seem based on, I mean, they're all based on the same suite of technologies, which is point cloud tracking. So what does that mean? Do we want to get into that a little bit? Yeah. So I think the first time most people saw this was um, that earlier Microsoft photo demo. What was that called? Photosynth? Yeah, I think that's the Is one that you're right? thinking of. Yeah. 
where it would take all of your photos of the same location and sort of stitch them together into one seamless pile of photos based on where they occurred in reality. And the way that that's possible is, um, well, the first thing that those, those algorithms do is they have some way of finding really high confidence points. So what they do is they, they look at your image and they find corners and high contrast edges and dots and all these various things. And um, there's a number of ways to do that. Um, they mostly involve matrix math. But what they're looking for is a place in the image that they can be fairly certain that if if seen from if you took two photos, you know, in quick succession, you would you would pick that same dot out of the same out of the multiple images based on the fact that it's just sort of a good, you know, point. Um, so it's where, you know, the best are where two perpendicular lines come together or um, other items like that. And so mostly they go through and they try to find stuff. Um, I remember some of the early implementations that were really good used something called Gaussian space. The idea being that you blurred an image a bunch of times with different levels of blur and then sort of compared them to each other. And the ones that had dots, ones that had high contrast changes between the various um, Gaussian spaces were, were good candidates. Um, basically, something that existed in one level of blur but not other levels of blur. Sure. And so, so they, you know, they use whatever suite of algorithms they, they ch they've chosen to find these dots. And then <clears throat> they, then once you've done that with a series of images, you can start trying to match the dots to each other. And um, what's really great is some of these algorithms for, for finding a series of dots can actually take into account um, deformations of the thing. So you can have, have, you know, you can find all the dots in, you know, say a sign or something and then look for another image. And, you know, the simplest is to find the same sign, like move left, right, up or down. And then more complex is finding the sign turned a little bit, you know, but still in plane with the camera. So it's still directly facing the camera, but it's been like rotated. And then you can start getting into things where there are algorithms that are good enough that they can actually find the sign when it's been tilted relative to the camera. So it's actually deformed in 3D space. And then once you're able to do that, you can start matching up these clouds of you know, tracking points, as they're called, through 3D deformations. Then you can start rebuilding whole scenes and finding, so like, all those points there in this picture and those the same points here in this picture are both the Eiffel Tower. You know, we can tell because they, you know, if you deform it the right way, they they line up. And so those are both the Eiffel Tower. And so even though the things in other parts of the shot aren't the same, we can figure out relative to each other where these two photos were taken. And then we can add a fourth and a fifth. And then they start, you know, building these giant data sets. 
And every time you add another one, as long as you can find where it fits into this point cloud, then you can add all of its other tracking points in. And you can slowly build a space. And as soon as you, as soon as you figured out where two pictures were taken relative to each other, now all of the points that they share, you can start triangulating in 3D space. And that's where these algorithms get really interesting because they can actually, through a series of photos or you know individual frames from a movie, they can start rebuilding the 3D topology of the scene. And this is, you know, this is what, you know, the really high-end camera trackers have been doing, um, you know, the virtual set type things. Um. Well, and I think this gets into um, one of the other interesting applications that we'd highlighted this week um, that was, I think, announced at SIGGRAPH, but maybe it's been out before that, but I think it was announced at SIGGRAPH, which is Autodesk's PhotoFly. Um, right. which is released as a sort of technology demo. Um, I think Autodesk calls it part of their labs. Um, and this is an application for doing 3D models of objects uh, based on a bunch of still photographs taken from various angles of the object, uh, which the software then does uses this technology to reconstruct in 3D space. Um, and so rather than building a sort of environment that you're in they're they're focused on just a an object that you're you're targeting and that you're rotating around the outside of um and the demos that have been posted and you can see some from autodesk and actually some have also just shown up from uh, on youtube from people playing with it are really quite remarkable um if anyone's ever dealt with 3d modeling before 3d is one of those spaces that i just barely touch because i just do not have the patience for it um and so to see what people are able to do by just taking a whole bunch of photographs and to have these very detailed uh, 3D models that you can manipulate and, you know, zoom and fly all around um, is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, a few of those looked really impressive. Um, I'll, be, I'll be curious to see. So that's a free sort of demo thing they have? Yeah, unfortunately, it's a Windows-only thing. Oh, um, yeah, Autodesk likes to do that. Wait, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe it was announced a while ago. I'm not sure. Now I'm wondering. Photo. This is called PhotoFly, correct? Yeah. It, I hadn't been aware of it prior to this week. Um, yeah, no, I, I first saw it this week. Um, it seems like there was a... Uh, a previous version that's been around for a while, but uh, now I'm starting to wonder if maybe it's, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to take a, a link. It mm-hmm. definitely is when re- requires Windows, though, um, to, to use it. So hence the reason we haven't played with it, I suppose. Um, what I find really interesting about it is, uh, you know, twofold. One, um, you know, because it makes 3D modeling accessible to people who uh, otherwise might not have either the skills or the patience or the technology for 3D modeling. I think that, you know, is potentially very interesting. Um, But also when you think about some of the other technologies that are out there these days, like um, 3D printers, 
um, that are, are becoming more and more affordable or outsource 3D printing through um, services that will do that, you know, it becomes realistic to use a technology like this to take a bunch of photographs around an object that you need a copy of and submit that model to one of these services and uh, get back a copy of that object. So do you think, is 3D going to be the next video? So, I mean, we had desktop publishing, which was democratized, and everyone started doing it, and it was hideous. Um, and then, you know, I think audio probably came next, where everybody had something like GarageBand. And now, you know, now we're in the stage where everyone shoots their own videos and puts them up on YouTube, um, you know, with all the gnashing of teeth that comes from that. Right. Is is 3D next? Is well, I think that this type of 3D is at least a lot more interesting than uh, stereoscopic 3D, which is right. the, what what we've sort of been distracted by. Um, it's visually 3D, not right. And, and and of course, that's that's you know maybe potentially sort of interesting when it's done by a director who's trying to you know give you a very perspective very. Pers- very particular perspective on a scene but the problem with stereoscopic visual 3d like that is of course that your inclination is to move your head around and try and see different things and that doesn't work because of course you're you're seeing what they want you to see whereas you can see down the line with um sort of accessible 3d environment capture um, a world in which you can actually move around within a scene. I mean, plenty of people have done technology demos where they've sort of captured live um, live video of, you know, a complete 360 degree around the camera that you can then sort of move your head and look at whatever you want to look at of a um, scene in time. And you right. can see that sort of technology combined with 3D imaging technology to create a pretty interesting... Uh, environment that you can move in after the fact i mean that to me is a lot more interesting at least uh we're obviously a ways off from that um but i think that these sorts of technologies um that that democratize um 3d are are getting us closer um yeah i mean i could imagine i i it seems like soon so right now we basically shoot when people want to finish in 3D, they shoot the images that you later see. They shoot two eyes, and that is the film. Um, it seems like we're not too far away from a day where you shoot something, you know, in the same way that nowadays no one thinks twice about shooting drastically higher resolution. <coughs> than they plan to deliver. It seems like we could end up, you know, with a camera rig, something more along the lines of like a main camera and two depth cameras, you know, which are basically just cameras set five feet away from the the main one or something like that um, to get as much of the, you know, occluded space as possible. And then generating, you know, and then taking those three and actually building your two eyes, you know, basically it's synthesizing the right and left eye from that, you know, stream of data from those three right. cameras. So any, anywhere within the space from the leftmost camera to the rightmost camera, you can place a virtual camera 
or your, right. your, your eyes. And people right. have done, uh, getting back to our earlier topic, people have done proof of concept stuff with this using connects, um, where they've gotten a, a handful of connects and rigged them up to be able to create a live 3D environment that they can move within, where they can position the camera in places that there is no camera. Right. Uh, which and it is, seems like, you know, three DSLR shooting good quality video with the lenses somehow locked together or, you know, the lenses wide open so that you don't have to worry about things like depth of field. Like, it should be possible to relatively easily build build out, you know, something where you could move around at least, you know, at least something where you could if you had head tracking on the display side, you could actually, you know, use your TV as a window into that scene. Right, exactly. And that's where that's where 3D starts getting a little more interesting right. or a little less painful. I would I would viewer. wear stupid glasses to be able to do that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems, you know, it's been a long... I remember there was... There was a point when, you know, resolution was, or, you know, just shooting really high quality video became a big deal. Right. And then we, like, we passed that point in, I don't know, it was like 2003, 2004. And then all of a sudden, you know, you go to NAB the next year and it's like, oh, look, more cameras shooting with more resolution you know they're just where we hit this sort of plateau and it was everything was good enough right it, it stopped being interesting that you could do you know 5k instead of 4k um, right and the price point just started plummeting and it was like anyone could shoot good video there was no excuse anymore right and it seems like you know it's there have been research papers about these you know these sort of point point cloud 3d reconstruction sort of things for you know I can think of them for the last 10 years. And it seems like the technology is becoming, you know, ubiquitous and and really, really reliable at this point. I mean, I can, you know, I the other day I stumbled upon two or three open source projects to allow you to do this sort of thing. You know, every... Every 3D app now has a motion tracker built in. There are f- five or six really robust motion tracker motion tracking tools for video. I mean, it just seems like this technology has sort of gelled to the point now <clears throat> and where we can just start building on top of it. We don't really have to worry about, you know, creating the foundation anymore it's now what can you do with this or what do you want to do with this right i think that's i think that's absolutely correct and that's kind of i feel like we're at the same point you know and it's a it's a similar it's a related technology but i feel like we're at that same point now with uh face tracking where within the last year or two face tracking is like in every you know consumer camera it's being built into desktop software facial recognition is being built into every web app you use yeah. So if you were uh, in London this week uh, stealing shoes uh, in the city with the most cameras on the yeah, planet, yeah, expect a call. Yeah. Um, it's it's all fascinating stuff. I I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting applications to this because it really does open up an entirely well 
Okay, I'm going to say it. It new opens paradigm. up. No, it's going to be worse than that. Are you ready? It opens up a whole new dimension for oh, consumers. <sighs> you owe us all an apology. Everyone. I apologize to mom and Mike. <laughs> there, that's everyone. And actually, I don't think mom listens. Um, so in any case, I mean, you know, even to think about applications for 3D imaging, to be able to image a 3D object, um, not just for making copies like we talked about, but, um, you know, to, to remember, uh, you know, historic objects or family heirlooms, um, things that, you know, might not be around in the future. If we, we think about the types of, you know, things that are important to us, but that have a fixed shelf life, things that are degrading or decomposing over time, you know, it's within the next, you know, year or two years going to be possible using just your iPhone to create a acceptable 3D model of an object that's sitting on a desk and preserve that, um, at least to remember it, and then maybe in the future to replicate it. Uh, that's sort of sci-fi stuff right there. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, it's not really in our, the wheelhouse of this podcast, but um, I've been sort of amazed how close it seems that the 3D printing and replication is to mainstream right well there was an article this week that i think got a lot of people's eyes opened which was about um 3d printing a part for a baby buggy um hmm. let me uh just find because the name of the company was in there Reprap? Uh, or was it someone no else? no it was an outsourced company um so uh, shapeworks yeah that was it um hmm. let me just uh Make sure. So this was like a Etsy style. Well, so this was a guy who buggy had, upgrade um, or something. No, he had a very fancy three uh, D or a very fancy baby buggy um, that had a part. It looked like maybe part of a cam or something that broke inside of it, and the company that made it wanted two hundred and fifty dollars for the part. Um, he disassembled the the part um, and sort of pieced it back together. And just by measuring it, because it was a fairly simple part made out of um, stainless steel, I, I believe, you know, he measured it, built a 3D model, and then um, sent it off to be made for him, um, CNC'd for him, I believe, um, rather than actually 3D printed in this case. Um, but he was, you know, for $20 or whatever, able to get this part, and he did it all himself. Um, yeah, it was Shapeways that uh, that created it. So I'm not sure if they, I'm not actually sure if they CNC'd it or did it. No, uh, they, they only do printing, I think. Okay, well, but he got it in stainless, so. He did? Huh. Yeah. For 20 bucks? Something like that, yeah. It's gotten a lot better than I thought. Yeah, $11 is uh, what it's what? quoted, it looks like, yeah. Wow. We should... We should do a project. Yeah, I'm not sure. You can't 3D print steel, but maybe they mean they just laser. I mean, you can center it. Yeah, I guess. I guess you could, yeah. But I don't think anybody, I haven't seen anyone who's centering for, you know, cheap, like web, you know, web businesses. Right. But I mean, you know, so you you can make the jump without too much craziness from take your iPhone, take 40 pictures of an object from all sides, push a button, and three days later, have a copy of that object made in whatever material you want. 
Like right, and the and the great thing about the three D point cloud style of mapping is you actually get color data. Right, and some of the three D printers. I mean, there are three D printers based on inkjet technology, where they're basically printing four color inkjet plus um, super glue into a like a powdered plastic or powdered uh, cellulose yeah. layer, and so they can actually print in full color into this. And so the part you get has, you know, the, the you know the colors that you choose sort of baked into it. And so if you build, you know, it, in this world where you have this app that you just wave around your, I mean, we've got the opposite of this already for the iPhone, where you wave your phone around and you get a panoramic. Right. So there's really no difference between that and one where you wave it around and you get a 3D object. So I the, mean, it's not any more difficult. The uh, the materials that Shapeways will use, just for people who haven't looked at this, um, stainless steel, alumide, which is uh, aluminum dust, uh, ceramics, glass, full color sandstone, uh, white, strong, and flexible sort of polycarbonate or something, uh, uh, white detail, photopolymer, transparent photopolymer, black photopolymer, um, AV cured acrylic plastic, ABS plastic, and solid silver. Huh. So they must be doing. I know the way they do the silver is because um, I've I've met I've actually talked to the one of the guys there, um, and I know the way they do silver is they actually do a wax buildup, hmm. and then they um, they encase it in something and do a pour out replacement. Sure. Um, so I wonder if that's I wonder how they're doing the stainless. Yeah, I mean they said the aluminum with uh, is with selective laser centering, but yeah. Uh, yeah, they don't say how they do the uh, stainless. Isn't really. Yeah, I mean you can you can center steel, but you don't end up with stainless when you're done. Right. So I, I don't know unless they re galvanize or something, but that seems hard to I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't know. But in any case, it's it's technology that's out there, and if you haven't, um, it's worth taking a look at the Instructables article that this guy wrote about how he did it and to just think about what the possibilities are. And this isn't sort of futuristic. Um, you know, it's five to ten years out. It's going to come to us at the same time nuclear fusion does. Um, this is actually like uh, six months from now. Yeah. I, I think so. No, I, well, see, but Fusion's coming? No, Fusion is always six to, you know, five to ten years out. That's the joke. Yeah, but this, I hope, is... Uh... Right, what I'm saying is this isn't like that. Mm. Don't you get okay. it? No, I would say by um, 2013, this will be fairly commonplace for, you know, people of our sort. Mm, I think I think in the same way I think it'll take 15 years to be prevalent you know in the way that everyone now has a computer whereas when we were kids you know you were a little strange if you had a computer at home you know I think right now you're pretty strange if you have a 3D printer at home and yes things are progressing pretty quickly but you know, in the same way, it was hard to, to. The use case for most people was sort of hard to explain for computers for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, like oh, it, you know, you can. You know, you need a killer app 
And the problem for, I guess what it is, is, I mean, what really drove the computer, the popularity of the computer was the, the internet. Right. Well, how about this? How about within two years, there will be an app for your iOS device that lets you image and order uh, a 3D? Oh, sure. I believe that. And that sounds like a killer app to me. I mean, you know, give it to teenagers, use the iTunes, use your iTunes account to bill you, and you, you know, tap the material you want, and uh, a couple of days later, it shows up at your door. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a little bit further off than that. But yeah, I think that will be interesting. That will be interesting. And uh, yeah, I, don't, I mean, yeah, what's going to be what I mean, and you know, lots of people are already talking about this problem but I mean what popularized the personal computer a lot was the internet and having some sort of you know before that it was something you did work on you know you did word processing you did spreadsheets it was all having to to produce something and in the same way like I think as long as we have to make our 3D models that 3D printing isn't going to be very interesting right. to a lot of people. Uh, um, you know, because I'm sure, you know, with, with the expansion of the internet and video and whatnot, like, there are, you know, a lot of people putting videos on YouTube, but it is still the minority. You know, I would say a lot more people consume videos on YouTube by an order of, you know, by four or five orders of magnitude than make them. Sure. And so, in the same way, I think it's going to be, you know, I don't know. Is there going to be sites? Where, I mean, there already are sites where you can go and get, you know, 3D files. Yeah, I mean, Shape, Shapeways runs one, um, but there are lots of others that are sort of open 3D. And there have already been some uh, copyright issues, I think. Uh, and that will certainly ramp up when um, it's not just downloading music, but it's downloading, you know everything right um but yeah i mean i I think it's going to be a mix of things and you know and a mix of technologies to build the models and refine the models um but it's certainly coming and it's certainly a lot closer than i would have guessed a few years ago when you were seeing what was you know the difference between what comes out of a rep wrap and what comes out of shapeways is pretty remarkable um and it's pretty clear to me that you know the latter is the the way things are going to go, uh, home three D printing is is much much further off. Meh, I think I think within the next ten years it will be pretty good. But so let's bring this back into video and yeah, we media and stuff. What? So where? What is? Let's discuss where all of this can go. Well, I think you know in terms of um, the practical realities of the world. You know, right now, we're still very much in a specialist phase. Um, You know, even stereoscopic 3D is pretty specialized. Um, You know, there are definitely some consumer cameras that acquire it, but there's very little in the way of software to deal with it in in even halfway interesting ways. Um, Right. And certainly not in the ways that we imagine when we think about what we might could do with 3D data. Um, And so there's... There's definitely a, a wide open space for software. Um, obviously, displays are, are, are quite a mixed bag, um, and I think that you know things like 
just coming up with some standards for transporting this data. Um, I don't see a lot of good movement in that direction. Um, well, there's MVC. I mean, it depends on what sort of data you mean. Well, when you, well, let's say we're capturing you know multiple streams of two-dimensional video plus depth data. Yeah, I mean, depth data I think is going to be encoded as as ah. Uh, luminance you know a separate luminance video for a while yeah which i mean it works well for that it's a channel yeah makes sense yeah stuff in your alpha most people don't need alpha um but i mean what's so what can we so one of the apps i was thinking about this week or plug-in ideas that i think someone should make is i mean facial tracking has gotten really really good um and i think it's time that, you know, because there, there are a lot of things that you can do relatively easy when you're working with stills that you just, you know, become prohibitively time-consuming when working with video. And one of them is, you know, all of the standard digital makeup effects that you do whenever you're shooting, you know, a photo shoot nowadays. Like, no photo shoot ever ends before it's gone through Photoshop. Right. And it seems to me that, you know, with what we can do with facial tracking or posture tracking now, it wouldn't be impossible to make a, you know, a relatively automatic digital cosmetic plugin. Yeah. So facial tracking knows where eyeballs are. It's really easy to whiten eyeballs. If facial tracking knows where eyes are, it's really easy to remove crow's feet. If facial tracking knows where lips are, it's easy to, you know, up the saturation in the red channel right where lips are. And, you know, conversely, it's really easy to whiten anything inside the lips that's not, you know, like whitening teeth. Right. And this is something that, you know, if you're not aware, happens all the time in, in high-end feature film production, uh, digital makeup, but it's being done primarily by hand by rotoscopers and, and, you know, traditional artists. Right. So right now it's highly time intensive and expensive. And and there are and so I mean there are a number of plugins on the consumer side for doing digital cosmetics, but my understanding is that they're all similar to what's built into cameras right now. Something called um, a flesh matrix. So they're they're essentially that's, dumb transforms of the video. Right. So yeah. So it's that's that's the term, right? Flesh matrix. Flesh. I, I think so. Something like that. Um, like I know Sony came out with that years ago and they really pushed it for a while, but basically it's a, it's a key plus a blur. Right. So you key based on, you know, flesh tones, produce a mask and then you Gaussian blur everything inside of that. So anything that was flesh toned ends up a little bit fuzzier. Um, you know, I know there's a few plugins that have come out recently to do this. But it seems like, you know, with all the data we can get from facial tracking now, it would be relatively 
you know, it would be doable to uh, to do something far more intelligent. And it seems like um, it seems like something that you could uh, that you could sell people, and that they could easily sell clients. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a pretty well, maybe it's not as limited a market, but it's I don't see it as consumer technology. Infomercials, weddings. Yeah, I suppose uh, local news. Yeah, I mean news. You know, they. I suppose they just built in them, news yeah. cameras. Well, but you know, anyone with a with a Sony CCU has their sure flash sure. matrix like just cranked if they're shooting news. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think you know, they there's a lot of you know talking heads shot right now where you know i'm i i've had the experience where i'm finishing finish editing something and they like what can we do to make that person look better yeah you know and if you could be like well let me drop this 200 dollars filter on there okay there you go yeah, well, that looks better yeah let let me let it run for a while then then we'll show you right well i mean that's the thing about all these technologies. Is this was because you're not really filter. talking about, yeah. Although to do it well, you need to do temporal tracking in addition to just single frame. You, know, you can't just do it as a, a frame by frame thing because no. you don't want to have significant differences between frames and you need to do object detection. I mean, it gets complicated. Right. But I mean, it's if much one, less complicated you know, than rotoing the shot. Well, it's a lot cheaper than rotoing the shot. Exactly. So what else? What are the other things? Well, the other one that I thought was pretty interesting um, was just the other product out of out of SIGGRAPH that I thought was pretty interesting was GelSight, which we haven't talked about, um, oh, yeah. which is this uh, MIT camera that uses um, a piece of clear rubber and some LEDs and a camera and some magic to do pretty insane 3D images at a two micron resolution. Um, and if that that that's very very small um so some of their demos are um, imaging things like um the t on the word treasury on a dollar bill where not only can you detect in 3d space the raised uh printing of the t but you can also see all of the individual fibers of the of the paper um and the you know the individual like beads of ink essentially it's it's highly impressive um and again, it's just an interesting way of capturing 3D data about the world around us. Um, obviously, this is less applicable to motion picture production, but if you're trying to create, you know, insanely detailed 3D models of objects, being able to get that texture at that level means that you can do things like more accurately model the way that light bounces off that object, um, and and many other interesting things. Right. And so the my understanding is the way they're doing this is they use a Sort of squishy gel, and then they're lighting it from the side, essentially, right? So it's right. like um, it's like how you can see your fingerprint on the other side of a glass really easily because it's being lit from because the glass is being lit through the sides of it. Right. The light's being transmitted through the glass, and it both magnifies and sort of puts into relief things that are physically touching them yep the surface 
And so they're also doing this 3D imagery. Are they doing that by just moving around the light, I think? Uh, yeah, I believe so. That's what it so looks like. So the light, like, like yeah. they've got a series of LEDs, and they sort of turn them on and off around the edge, and then they build a depth map based on which side yep. shadow and highlight comes from at any moment. Yep. Interesting. I mean, it looks it looks cool. I don't... It'd be fun to have one. I would have wanted one in my high, you know, my high school science class. Yeah. Well, again, it's just one of those interesting bits of technology um, that uh, came out of the conference. It's it's a conference that I would very much like to go to someday. I'd, yeah, we'll have to go. I thought it was always in LA, but this year it's in Toronto, right? Yeah, it's uh, well somewhere in Canada. Vancouver. Vancouver. I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. That makes more sense. At least it's um, over here. But next year it's in Los Angeles, so uh, we'll have to. We'll have to go to that. Make a trip. I'm meaning to go for a while. Make a trip down, um, and uh, we hope to see you all there. Anything else uh, this week that was of interest to you? Again, mm. it's it's kind of a you know it's a slow month for technology. We'll start to gear up towards the end of the month as uh, uh, IBC gets near. Right. Um, which is the the European version of NAB that someday we will also have to go to. Um, But uh, otherwise, everyone's on vacation or burning things at the moment. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I can't think of much else. We'll have to get into more uh, pontification as we go on. Yeah. Well, if you'd like us to pontificate about something uh, next week, let us know. And uh, we will probably listen to what you say because we're followers. So um, that's it for this week then. And next week it'll be... uh... Yeah, I'm going to have to call you sir and stuff. (laughs) It's true. Looking forward to that. All right. Well, then, first, for one last time, uh, I hope you have a, a good week, Mr. Douchebag. You too.